Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello, hello. So you know what I just did? So this is an example of the new era, all right? Right before the show, with two and a half minutes before airtime, I suddenly realized that the dryer was on in the background. And I can't just step away from where I am, too. I have to sort of pull things towards me and push things away from me. So I'm kind of quickly, quickly unwrapping myself from this position so I can run over to the dryer and turn it off. I've been working in broadcasting for 178 years, and I've never had to turn the dryer off before, before uh, right before the show. So anyway, I don't know why anybody cares about that except me, but I thought it was funny. We're going to talk about the sports thing today. And we know some of you public radio listeners don't like the sports thing, uh, but this isn't even really about whether you like the sports thing or not. By sports thing, I'm meaning the kicking, the hitting, the throwing, the running, um, the swimming, um, but this is sort of more about, first of all, in our first segment, how you restart, not just a league that's had a strike or something, but like everything. How do you restart everything all at once or in stages? And then obviously the racial unrest that has convulsed the nation, uh, did not leave sports untouched. And in many respects, sports is one of the places where this whole question plays out in very interesting and very fraught ways. So we'll talk about that, what's happening with all of that. And then lastly, we are all turning into the sovereign. You know, the sovereign are the people in Guardians of the Galaxy. They have gold faces. And it turns out you're never fighting them, fighting like some kind of e-game that they're playing with you. Anyway, it turns out people are now betting on e-sports. So that's an indication that, you know, Zagar and Evans were right. And anyway, uh, let's begin with Ben Cohen. Uh, he's been on our show before. He's a terrific sports writer for the Wall Street Journal and the author of a book we fully intended to discuss when the world settles down uh, at some point, uh, the author of The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. But for today, we're going to talk to Ben about what he's been covering lately, which is uh, which are the attempts of various sports leagues to get themselves back going again. So, uh, Ben Cohen, welcome back to our show. Thank you for having me again. So, it all began with the NBA, the shutdown anyway, all began with the NBA, so maybe we should start with the NBA. They're trying to start back up again. You sometimes wonder how smart these people are, because both <laughs> the NBA and the MLS have thought, Wow, let's go to Florida. That would be a good place to be during a pandemic. I mean, they're probably not going to have any problems. Uh, and I would point out right now that Florida had 1,426 positive tests, its highest total since April on Saturday, uh, and seven days of its highest cases on a rolling average. But that's getting ahead of our story. So Ben Cohen, the NBA is going to do this rather unusual thing, which is to have kind of a a compound in the land of the mouse. Is this true? I think rather unusual is a very generous way <laughs> of putting it. I think it's just about the wildest, craziest um, 
maybe greatest experiment in the history of sports. The NBA is bringing 22 of its 30 teams um, to Disney World uh, to start to restart the NBA season on July 31st. Um, and they're sequestering all the teams in this one neutral site. They're going to play around the clock in arenas without fans and then get to the playoffs. And the playoffs could last until the middle of October. So you could have two teams that are there from the middle of July until the middle of October not really leaving. And, you know, there's some questions about what exactly this bubble, or as the NBA likes to call it, a campus environment will actually look like. Like, will you see LeBron James in the coffee line in the morning? Or will they, will NBA players be getting on the elevator with each other, going to the same floor of the hotels? I mean, this is something that has never been attempted before in the history of sports. And to have some of the most famous people on earth uh, you know, um, quarantining in the same place for an extended period of time is going to lead to some very odd outcomes, let alone what happens on the basketball court. Right. And so, I mean, help me understand this. So they'll be sequestered like, I don't know, like they won't, their wives and kids won't be there. I mean, there have been negotiations with the union. It sounds like family will be able to come after the first round of the playoffs. So they'll be there for a few weeks, um, you know, just as a team, like on a business trip by themselves. That, that's what it feels like anyway. The, the NBA is getting close to releasing some of its health and safety and medical protocols to the union that will, you know, inevitably leak out for everybody else to read. But this is a plan that has been mostly approved so far, in fact, entirely approved by the NBA's Board of Governors and, um, you know, greenlit by the NBA Players Union. Um, the details are not yet clear and teams are going to be reporting to Florida in less than a month or so. We should say just from the sheer sports standpoint of this, they've also they've kind of done this strange culling process, right? I mean, uh, there's uh, not all of the teams are going uh, the worst team going. And I say this as something of a fan of theirs is the Phoenix Suns. And anybody, anybody worse than the Phoenix Suns can't come. That's right. And and in coming to this conclusion, the NBA actually scrapped some of the more creative solutions for restarting the season. There was some momentum for bringing a World Cup-like international soccer group stage to the NBA for the playoffs. There was talk about just, you know, canning the rest of the regular season and proceeding directly to the postseason. The NBA sort of um, found a compromise um, and is bringing 22 of the 30 teams. They'll each play eight regular season games to determine playoff seeding and also um, to figure out um, you know, which uh, team will get the number eight seed in both conferences. And then they'll proceed to the playoffs as they have been traditionally played. So the best of seven series. The difference, of course, is that there's no such thing as home court advantage anymore since there is no such thing as a home court. Uh, you know, there won't be um, going back and forth between two cities. There won't be fans of any kind. And it's, you know, completely uncertain what type of game day environment that will result in. Like, we've never seen anything like this before uh, for such a long time in American sports anyway. And there are lots of funny consequences, um, you know, that could result from this. Right. F funny in both senses of the word, I think. Um, I would just like to parenthetically interject that in one rating set that I saw, the Phoenix Suns were given a 10,000 to one chance of winning the NBA title. So you're so, saying there's all, a chance. Yeah. Yeah. They, and also there's a chance uh, if you could get that bet somewhere, you might as well make it. But um also, imagine if you're like the Knicks or something, you know, the 10,000 to one team got in and you didn't. So, um, 
obviously this whole thing started with um, two players, I think, on the Utah Jazz having positive PCR tests. It shut down the whole league pretty darn quickly, too. Um, what about now? Well, I mean, I assume they'll, they'll be taking their temperatures all the time and testing them all the time. And so, so what happens now? Well, it's interesting because one positive test, that first positive test of Utah Jazz center Rudy Gobert on March 11th was enough to shut down the NBA and within 24 hours really shut down all of American sports. In many ways, that was the tipping point, I think, that you know brought um, the country to a greater awareness of what was about to happen, this, the severe disturbances ahead. But what's changed is that there has really been a broader acceptance of risk in sports and I think across the country. I think every company and every employee is going to have to weigh risk versus reward as you know we try to ease these lockdowns um, and get back to some sense of normalcy. And you know, while three months ago one positive test was enough to shut down the NBA, I think American sports leagues now realize that it's almost inevitable that there will be more positive tests, and they have to figure out a way to keep playing through them. So, um, you know, uh, limit and contain outbreaks, not just keep the virus out, although, of course, they would love to do that. But they, you know, they they, they won't shut down games, they probably won't even stop um, a single game if a player tests positive. And there's an interesting um, case study and sort of proof of concept happening across the ocean, because European soccer has been playing for a few weeks now, and there have been positive tests, and they've managed to keep playing through them. And so I think you know, the NBA um, and many other leagues are studying the German Bundesliga, for example, and and trying to figure out what it is exactly that allows them to keep playing um, and, and recoup some of these billions of dollars that they have lost while avoiding a medical catastrophe. Right. Uh, it's also happened, I believe, in Japanese baseball. I think two players for the Yoshimura Giants uh, tested positive. I think they might still be in preseason. But um, but yeah, uh, so it's the Yomiuri Giants. So um so this, so well, let's just pause that there. Although, and I don't know how much you know about this or want to say about this, but Major League Soccer is like doing the same thing. Last time I heard, right? Are they going to Disney World? I believe they are. I think they will be there at the same time. Now, it, it's funny when you think about one positive test not shutting down sports. I mean, if a player tests positive, he's going to have to clearly um, sit out and quarantine for some period of time and probably test negative twice before he returns. And there are all types of weird consequences. Like what happens if LeBron James tests positive and is asymptomatic before you know game one of the NBA Finals? Does that mean he's out for the finals even if he feels fine. I mean, I think it has to be, but we've never really seen anything like this before. The whole narrative of sports is playing through pain, right? And mm -hmm. yet players now are not going to be allowed to play if they test positive for the safety of everybody else around them. Closest I can think uh, of a comparison was during the era of AIDS, and you know, we all can re recall another member of the Utah Jazz, Carl Malone, having some real problems, being on the court with magic and stuff like that. But another member of the Lakers, right? Yeah. So could so uh, there's so many questions about this. Obviously, one of the big questions is going to be when they win the championship, the, and somebody says, "Hey, LeBron, you just won the NBA championship. Where are you going?" He's already at Disney World. He's just going to say, I'm going to rent a car and drive to Pensacola. He's going to know. Disneyland. Now, think about what happens after they win the championship. Will there be a champagne celebration in the locker room? Will there be a locker room? Can you have a parade? I mean, these are all questions that teams have never asked before, but um, they probably will have to be asking if they are lucky enough to ask those questions now. Right. Um, and we should just say, from a sports geekery uh, standpoint, I mean, we think of like Roger Maris and his asterisk after 
61 home runs. This is going to be like pages of all sports record books are going to be full of asterisks, right? I mean, if somebody averages 67 points a game or something in over this strange brief season, I mean, it's it's going to be a series of records that will be constantly, I don't know, I mean, undermined or something. I think that's right, but I also think that um, there's a there's an argument to be made that whoever wins this championship, there maybe there's an asterisk, but it will be even more memorable. I mean, it's something that people are not going to be able to forget. And in the NBA, anyway, I think that there's an asterisk. You could make an argument, anyway, for an asterisk next to almost every championship. In order to win an NBA title, to win four best-of-seven playoff series, something has to break your way. You have to get lucky. You, the other team has to be injured. In fact, you could sort of go down the list of the last five NBA champions and um, affix an asterisk next to just about every single one of them. So, um, you know, the, 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 this talk about, um, you know, this, this asterisk season, I don't really buy it. I think that you could put an asterisk next to almost anything that happens in professional sports. So we should segue from there. So, I mean, the NBA, they have a plan. It's a somewhat wacky plan. And and Adam Silver, I think the, the commissioner, Adam Silver, has said also that they're going to be watching these numbers, that it is, you know, he says the number of new cases will be a factor in restarting the season and stuff like that. But they have a plan. Major League Baseball either has no plan, six plans, or several really bad plans that nobody agrees on. Maybe uh, you can, in a more learned way, characterize things. They have too many plans, which means they do not have a plan. The difference between baseball and basketball is that there is a fierce labor war and, and bitter negotiation in baseball that basketball doesn't have. In basketball, there's actually um, you know labor peace and a spirit of cooperation between the league office and the players' union. There is no such thing as cooperation in baseball these days. And, um, you know, we've already seen baseball kind of blow its opportunity to come back around July 4th um, and be the first major American sport back. And now um, there's a real danger of baseball not coming back at all or having some sort of um, incredibly abbreviated season that would come with that asterisk that we were just talking about. I mean, the the proposals that have been um, discussed range from, I think, like 45, 50 games to 110 games. I mean, that's that's a huge gap that has to be um, navigated. And, you know, the union and the league office are getting closer. But, you know, this is a discussion um, between billionaires and millionaires. And so far, nobody is really winning and the fans are losing. Right. Is is this I mean, obviously, the, there are all kinds of problems here. Um, I, I would point out, by the way, that some NBA players own shares of soccer, professional soccer teams. So they, maybe that's another reason they didn't get as many in, the, in as many labor fights. They are now ownership in their spare time. But um, is this mainly a, at the major league baseball level, a fight about money as opposed to you've got to keep us safe and healthy? Or are those, I mean, I, I real, obviously there's not as much money to go around. There's not going to be people in the stands, et cetera. So what are they mainly fighting about? It's mostly money, and I think that um, money and safety are now inextricably linked, right? Because it's a question of how much um, will you get paid to take that risk. But I think money um, is really the bottom line here. The players um, want a certain um, rate of their salaries paid, and they want a certain number of games played. And you can imagine that um, the owners want to pay them less, uh, and they don't want to give up so much of that revenue. And um, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars here, so not quite billions of dollars. And you would think that they would find some way to bridge that gap because both sides are so heavily incentivized 
to restart the baseball season, that it would be incredibly, um, you know, almost unforgivably irrational for them um, to not play baseball again this year. And yet, the that has sort of been the end game this whole time. And they haven't really inched that much closer to an agreement and they're running out of time now. And, um, you know, when you do get to this stage in a negotiation, when there is so much ill will and hostility on both sides, you, you do have to wonder if they will be able to um, solve that in a, an abbreviated um, time period, because they're really up against the clock and um, this is not something they can drag out for much longer. Right. It, it- it's worth noting. I mean, baseball is an ease, more easily socially distanceable sport. I mean, with a, some exceptions, but like Mike Trout spends most of the game nowhere near anybody. <laughs> and it's worth noting that basketball is a nightmare, right? Yes, I mean, it's right. a high contact sport in which you're sharing a ball. You basically turn the ball into a doorknob and it's played indoors. I mean, basically everything we know about this virus, um, basketball is among the worst sports and, and baseball is really among the safest sports, right. especially when there's no one in the stands. Right. I mean, it could be that rare instance where the first baseman says, would you mind taking a slightly bigger lead? I promise you <laughs> won't get picked off. Um, all right. So, you know, I am been a Green Bay Packers fan for complicated reasons. And so my Twitter feed, which is now almost entirely microbiologists and epidemiologists, still has all this, all this Packer stuff in it. And I don't know how representative they are of NFL fans. But, you know, all through this offseason, whether it's the draft or whatever, nobody goes, but maybe we won't play at all. I mean, the, uh, at the NFL mindset, I had just haven't really seen even anything close to the agonizing about this. It almost seems, and I maybe you know I can't look into the mind of Roger Goodell and would prefer not to even if I could. I don't know. Are they even really taking seriously the fact that there might be a second wave in the fall and they can't play? I think they definitely are, but it's a very NFL thing to act like they are bigger than a coronavirus pandemic, right? I mean, um, in some ways, this pandemic is revealing a lot of fundamental traits about the leagues. And, um, you know, the NFL um, sort of hiding behind the shield and, you know, acting um, as if it's bigger than a pandemic is is just extraordinarily NFL. Now, I, I do think it's going to be very interesting to see what America's biggest and most popular and richest sports league does, especially, you know, as as um, the season progresses, if they are able to, to come back to um, training camp in the summer and play a few games in the fall, what happens in October and November and December and January? And what happens to the Super Bowl? I mean, are we, are we going to see emptier stadiums? Is there going to be less contact. I mean, this is something that the NFL is trying to figure out. And maybe even more interestingly, colleges are trying to figure out with college football. The NFL, there is a pretty powerful union. Um, There is no such thing as a union for college athletes. And there's not really a central response um, or, or a central authority for college football in the way that there is for the NFL. And so I think what we're seeing in college football um, is a, a, an incredibly um, decentralized response with lots of different schools and different conferences in different parts of the country um, taking different actions. And um, I think it's a huge source of conflict that is simmering and is going to boil over as kids start coming back to campus. Right. I think the college thing is going to be fascinating because the other part of this, of course, is that none of these people are compensated. So 
you know, I mean, if you don't want to play for Ole Miss this season, you don't have to. I mean, no one can compel you. You're not under a contract. Uh, and you're not going to lose any money by not playing. I mean, if you have, obviously, professional aspirations, it's an issue. But I, I would imagine that overall, the the relationship of the athlete to some imperative to go play is much more shaky and probably pretty individualistic at the college level. It is. And they're also students. And what happens if um, other students don't come back to campus? Can you have a college football season um, for a school that is all virtual? Like what makes it safer for college athletes to come back um, than for college students, right? I I, I think these are questions that every college is trying to answer right now frantically. I mean, it's similar to baseball and basketball and football in that, you know, you can't really take months and months to make a decision here. You have to, you have to um, uh, make a decision with um, not perfect information and data that will evolve and um, what you do now um, and, and, and what you dictate for the fall is maybe not what you would have done two months ago and not what you will do in two months. But, um, but that's sort of the nature of decision making, right? I mean, all of this judgment happens under uncertainty and you have to do the best with what you have at that moment. And there, there are, you know, for all of these professional sports, there are multiple stakeholders um, and there's a lot of money on the table. But there's also a group of fans, many of whom have suffered all kinds of setbacks and, and suffered all kinds of hardships during this pandemic. But in some cases, have been really kind of clinging to the hope that this thing that they love will come back. And, and you start thinking, Ben, and I think this is a hard question to answer, but what gets weighed how? You know, is this mainly, in the case of the NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, a situation where there's just too much money uh, on the table, too much money available to too many people for them to completely just say, you know what, let's wait for a vaccine? Uh, or is there, to what, what percentage of this is love of the game? You know, Aaron Rodgers just wants to get out there and start flinging the football around. This is what this is what they do. Um, I, I don't know. And there may be no way to answer that question, even heuristically. But I'd be interested to hear how you're feeling about it anyway. Well, some of those fans are also Knicks fans, which means they have no hope whatsoever, <laughs> even when sports do return. It's kind of a well, mercy, do, actually. Yeah. yeah, I do think it's a fair question. Um, these are billion dollar businesses and they can't just stop playing. I mean, these financial concerns are really existential. If they go um, a certain length of time without playing, there will be huge cutbacks and layoffs and and the way that um, American sports look will be unrecognizable going forward. So I do think they have um, or they feel an obligation anyway um, uh, to try to play, to recoup some of that lost revenue, um, to, to restore some kind of sense of normalcy to the public. But, but this is really um, a money issue in the way that everything that professional sports do now is a money issue. I mean, I, I think to ignore um, those capitalist impulses um, is kind of naive and, and a little bit crazy, right? Of course, they are trying to play. They are huge businesses. Um, and if they don't, the financial consequences, I mean, there is a reckoning coming in professional sports either way. And, um, you know, if they're able to stave some of that off and, and save jobs um, and fulfill their national television contracts, um, you know, I, I think the... the um, 
the pain will be less. I mean, we've even we've seen Adam Silver um, tell players that their collective bargaining agreement was not written um, with a pandemic in mind, and with in which um, you know forty percent of the league's revenues were wiped out if if people are not able to come to arenas for a long time. So um, I think we are we are only beginning to sort of scratch the surface um, of what this means for the future of sports. My last question, it's another existential question, is, you know, is there also an, a danger, and I don't know whether they would be attuned to the danger, that as time goes by and as we live in such tumultuous times, I mean, I personally have been a Red Sox fan since 1967. I couldn't give a crap about what the Red Sox do this year. I am not interested. And anything that you have as a default embraced for decades that you suddenly question the value of uh, is it's a pretty tr tricky proposition, right? I mean, if I were involved in professional sports in some ways, in some way, I think I would be worried. Well, what if people decide we're not as important as they thought we were? I think that's right. It's an unprecedented dis disruption. Now, I'm sure there are some Red Sox fans who feel the exact opposite way, right? Who think I haven't, you know, the Red Sox haven't played for three months and I, I didn't know it was possible for me um, to cope this long and I would like them back as soon as possible. And there are plenty of people who say, you know, I, I, the world is on fire. Like, I don't care if, if uh, you know, Mookie Betts is two for four tonight, right? Like, it's just not really that big of a deal anymore. And so um, I think it's one of the great um, uncertainties of this sports return. Will people care more or less, right? Will sports has always made us crazy. I mean, it's one of the great things about human beings is um, our propensity to um, uh, devote ourselves so fully to these people in, um, you know, baggy clothes. I mean, you know, it, our allegiances to these um, strangers, right? And these brands is so strong and powerful. And um, just like everything else in the world right now, it may very well be turned upside down. And the only way to find out is for sports to actually come back. All right. Uh, ben Cohen, a great guest, as usual, sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal. While you're waiting for sports to restart, you might want to pick up The Hot Hand, The Mystery of Science of, and Science of Streaks by Ben Cohen. Thanks for doing this once again. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, in our second segment, uh, we are going to turn uh, away from the restart and toward the feelings that are boiling up in sports, especially in the NFL, about some of the questions of race that we've been grappling with for a few weeks and maybe quite a few decades as well. Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game. She's got game. We got game. They got game. He got game. It might feel good. It might sound a little something. All right, we are back, uh, and uh, we are talking about the world of sports in a very new era. Uh, and we're going to turn now to the way the various leagues and the various athletes have responded uh, to the wave of, I think, elevated consciousness about this whole issue that followed the tragic murder of uh, George Floyd. So joining us right now is Mark Carrig, a senior writer for The Atlantic, where he covers Major League Baseball. But what we're going to do right now, first of all, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, I, I think what we should do maybe is to do kind of a quick speed date through the various league responses. Uh, each of the leagues has attempted to craft some kind of 
sentiment, some kind of statement that that uh, captures its own thinking about this. And I, I think just as we talked in the first segment about how the different sports reveal themselves in the way they resp- respond to the coronavirus, they also do that when they respond to this question, too. So can we begin with the NBA? Uh, what did the NBA have to say about this? Yeah, so the NBA, uh, their response was crafted by their commissioner, Adam Silver, and initially was sent internally, uh, but then quickly made public after that. And so Adam is seen as uh, you know one of the more progressive leaders in sports. And so it seemed like his statement reflected that, also reflected the fact that that's a league, the NBA, in which the majority of the players are African-American. And so I think he saw that in the statement, uh, its contents, and, and clearly its timing. Uh, the National Hockey League came out with a statement that uh, I thought was noteworthy in what it said. And, you know, in, in their case, they discussed systemic racism and police brutality, and they did it unsparingly, uh, which was, I thought, remarkable. Uh, and also somewhat of a reflection of some of their players already coming out speaking out about these issues, um, even though the composition of that league um, is mostly white. Um, then you had the NFL and their initial statement, which um, I think the term word salad was uh, used to describe that, uh, which prompted eventually a stronger statement to come out. Um, and again, this was prompted by players speaking out about the content of that message. And then trailing along was Major League Baseball. Um, I think it was a week after this tragedy and after the other three leagues had already weighed in. Um, you know, and that, uh, I, I, to, to your point, I think probably is a, a reflection of where that league is at right now. Right. I mean, they used some of the right language, but there was something very pokey. Uh, about the the way they responded. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to talk about the NFL. The NFL is the place where this problem has been living and percolating, uh, some would say festering, uh, for quite some time, and all eyes were on them and the whole question of whether... I mean, they're the league that could conceivably take a 90-degree turn, you know, or maybe a 180-degree turn uh, because of this change in the atmosphere. So, I mean, the statement that came from Roger Goodell, it seemed to me anyway that if you didn't know beforehand what the statement was about or what it was in reference to, you might struggle to understand exactly what was being said and why. Well, I think more than anything, uh, we can pick through all of these and really any response and find the flaws in them. But what I find remarkable about this moment in time is that you're getting some major institutions to say publicly and to say out loud that systemic racism exists. And for a lot of people, that's a no-duh statement to make. But even when you step back, you realize, you know what? There's a lot of people that still dispute the existence of this force. So I think Roger Goodell, if I'm not mistaken, his statement does reference uh, this specifically. Uh, I don't think it references police uh, specifically, if I remember correctly. But I think the point is at least there is some forward movement. And what 
I think is important about the NFL statement, Roger Goodell's statement in particular, is how it came about, which was players taking to social media to voice their displeasure at the initial statement. Uh, and by the way, those players gave him a voice partly because people within the NFL gave him a platform. And in this case, it was people on their social media team who were upset at how the league was treating this and made their skills themselves available to the players to get their message out there, which, by the way, puts their own jobs at risk. So right. we can sit here and quibble about words on a statement, and I feel like, yes, that is fair. It also misses the point because what really is the takeaway from this is that you've got these monolithic leagues that have been entrenched in their ways of thinking being swayed by their own employees from within and then getting results such as what looks to be in the NFL's case, the beginnings of an about face. Right. So let's hear a little bit of the beginning of that about face. And yes, as you're saying, uh, these employees whose names we would ordinarily never know made themselves available without authorization from the top uh, to create this video. Let's hear a little bit about uh, of how the audio of that video sounded. It's been 10 days since George Floyd was brutally murdered. How many times do we need to ask you to listen to your players? What will it take for one of us to be murdered by police brutality? What if I was George Floyd? If I was George Floyd? What if I was George Floyd? 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 I am George Floyd. I am Breonna Taylor. I am Ahmaud Arbery. I am Eric Garner. I am McCormick Dunn. I am Tamir Rice. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Walter Scott. I am Michael Brown Jr. I am Samuel Du Bois. I am Frank Smart. I'm Philip White. I am Jordan Baker. We will not be silenced. We assert our rights to peacefully protest. It shouldn't take this long to admit. So, on behalf of the National Football League, this is what we, the players, would like to hear you state. We, we the, the National, National Football, Football League, League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit wrong in silencing our players from peacefully protesting. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black, black lives, lives matter. matter. Black lives matter. So, Mark, you know, there does seem to be such an incredible change in the weather. But I think it's easy maybe to get caught up in that and not acknowledge that, you know, sports fans are either conservative or liberal. They're either black or they're white. They're either enlightened or they're not. Uh, but they're kind of all over the place. And, and you don't have to work too hard on social media to find a whole bunch of threads that either rebuke and chastise sports talk show hosts who ventured into this ter terrain with stick to sports uh, to people who say they're never going to watch another NFL game if people are kneeling during the anthem to people who I mean, the battle has not been won, or at least the war hasn't been won. This is an incredible step that we've never seen before. But maybe you could talk a little bit about how ultimately this is going to play out the first time the Dallas Cowboys take the field with Mike McCarthy as their new coach. I mean, with a, you know, a Texas fan base. I mean, it's not like everybody signed up or signed on to these ideas. Yeah, the, nobody's saying that this is winning a war. Uh, right? Like, there's just no way. But mm -hmm. when you look at the stodgy world of sports, professional sports, um, this is 
a watershed moment. I can't emphasize that enough. Professional sports, a lot of them are inherently conservative. They don't want things to change. They are trying to appeal to the widest swath of the population. Therefore, they avoid these stances at all costs. And I think that's a world you could get away with, or that's a, a method you could get away with in the old world, the stick to sports that you reference. I think what's changed is that that myth has been blown up. There has never been an uh, argument to stick to sports because sports is ingrained in everything in our culture, including systemic racism. So this idea of, quote, sticking to sports is really just code for a lot of what led us here to begin with, which is looking the other way, which is silence, which is not acknowledging the problems before us. Stick to sports is a blanket statement you throw out there to be able to maintain that status quo. So moving forward, the very fact that this is being discussed at all is a major step. And that every time the national anthem is played at a venue, that's, I, I think, people are feeling, players are feeling more of a safer space to express what they think. So look, I think there are going to be NFL players that kneel. We've already seen that. What I'm more curious about is when you look at Major League Baseball, a sport that is so much more conservative, that is so much more geared toward you know, that old school mentality, which in itself is a loaded term when you really think about it. But when, when this was going on with Colin Kaepernick, uh, and and you know the, the beginnings of this from a sports context. When you look at baseball, there was one player that knelt during the anthem. Uh, and I'm curious when baseball comes back if that number climbs, because that to me would signal an actual sea change. If even in a place like Major League Baseball, players feel that there's that space to express themselves, which has always been discouraged in all sports, but particularly Major League Baseball. Right. Although, if you wanted to pick an even more conservative sport with an even more conservative fan base, that would be NASCAR. And we're already seeing Bubba Wallace with a car with hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter emblazoned on it uh, that's going to be driving at Martinsville. I'm sounding like I know anything about NASCAR, which I don't. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, one last thing I wanted to talk to you about is colleges. So colleges are interesting, too, because I think often the players and the student body are in a very different place from the alumni and kind of fans who fill the stands and times when people are actually allowed in the stands. Um, and I mean, I think particularly of the movie uh, The Blind Side, where at one point Kathy Bates is going to be the tutor uh, of Michael uh, Orr and she confesses that she's a Democrat and the parents, Tim McGraw says, how is it that we had a black son before we ever met a Democrat? Uh, and they're, they're fans of, they're fans of Ole Miss, you know, and you just sort of wonder, I mean, there's some pretty conservative like NFL fan bases and, and MLB fan bases, but you wonder what's going to happen if there's a college football season at all. And if football players for Ole Miss or some other place like that, if they come out kneeling or making some other kind of statement, that might, you might see some real tearing between them and the fabric of their fans. Well, I, you know, I, I would take that, you know, and expand that further than just the South. I think that's the entire setup of college football. Mm -hmm. When you really think about it, who are the coaches, right? Yeah. They all look the same. Who are the players? The majority of them don't look the same as the coaches. So when we talk about this system that is broken, that is imbued with racism, 
I think it's really difficult to look at college sports and not have that be right in your face. Mm. So I think that goes beyond just fans being annoyed about people kneeling during the anthem. I think it begins to really raise a question of what is it exactly that we're doing here? Uh, you are, these universities are making millions and millions of dollars on the backs of players that don't see a nickel of that profit. Uh, that doesn't seem fair to me. It's never seemed fair to me. And now when you look at it from this new lens that we all have in which we can acknowledge systemic racism, how do you look at college sports and not wonder what's wrong with this power dynamic right now? I think it is more than a question of um, turning off fans of a certain political stripe. I think it really is existential when you really think about it. We're talking to Mark Carrig, senior writer for The Athletic. I think I might have said The Atlantic when I introduced you. Sorry about that. Uh, and Okay, I said one last question. One last, last question. So one of the things people have been doing while they've been closeted and sheltered uh, during this time is to watch, to reminisce about the career of Michael Jordan, uh, watching this uh, documentary, The Last Dance. You know, and Michael Jordan's an interesting instance of a guy who uh, he's really stepped forward recently. But during his career, he wanted no part of any of this kind of stuff. And he perhaps got unfairly tagged with that Republicans by Sneakers 2 line, which I think was more of a joke on a team plane as than a real serious expression of his sentiments. But there was space for somebody who didn't want to be political to be to be on to be apolitical and, and have it not be a huge issue, at least not globally, not nationally. And I'm wondering about that now. I mean, it seems like it would be really hard now to be a professional athlete, a prominent one anyway, with no politics whatsoever. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think that that's part of a larger overall shift in people sharing who they are personally, which obviously social media is a part of that. Um, I think you've seen that phenomenon within sports uh, overall. Um, you know, when you bring up Jordan. When I look at that, I'm intrigued by it because when you think about where he is, where was a player and where he is now, you know, he's probably just in better position to say what he wants to say now, too. Right. And I think, uh, you know, as at a larger point, I think a lot of people of color can relate to this. When you're trying to make it uh, in whatever it is that you're doing, um, there's a part of you that always knows that there are certain places that if you choose to go to, uh, you're going to get labeled one way or another and that there are people with privilege that never have to worry about that decision. And so when I look at Michael Jordan as a player, it makes me wonder how much of that behavior or what he decided to do or not do back then was influenced simply by that, mm -hmm. right? Like there, there's just, if you're a black athlete at that time and you're, you're speaking out about the issues we're speaking about now, I think you're automatically you know, tagged with um, you know, these this label and and you know what i think it's fair to say that you're no longer as marketable especially mm -hmm. when you talk about the time that he played i think that was especially true right. my hope is that that starts to fall away <clears throat> that that's what we're seeing the beginning of that um you know we just see less and less and less of that because i think it's just better overall for everyone when people just speak their mind about something that is clearly clearly a problem and is clearly what is propping up so much injustice in our country 
I think that's a perfect place to end here. Mark Kerrig, thank you for a terrific conversation. Senior writer for The Athletic, where he covers Major League Baseball. We'll take a break, and then we'll talk about, you know, there's some pretty hopeful signs here amid some pretty depressing reasons for those signs. But now we'll talk about a sign that perhaps humanity is on the total verge of collapse. People are betting on esports. Them crackers took me out the league. Now I'm not much for games, but I play for keeps. And we salute King James for using his change to create some equal opportunities. Oh, so, okay, some quick thank yous, uh, especially to Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio keeping everything humming. So we can work remotely. And when I say we, I include Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, we are going to be back t- uh, tomorrow with... <laughs> I'm blocking on what Fitzy Kaplan's show is tomorrow. It's not the breathing show. That's like a week from now. I've forgotten what tomorrow's show is. But someone will type it into the Slack and I'll know. Uh, so... Um so as I mentioned at the top of the show, in Guardians of the Galaxy, there are these people called the Sovereign. They're this race of incredibly uh, entitled and incredibly wealthy people from some incredibly rich planet. And anytime you get into like an, a dogfight with them in outer space, it turns out you're not. They're back on their planet and they're just sort of moving things around. Everything's an e-game to them, which is proof of their moral and constitutional dissipation. Uh, so we've basically turned into the Sovereign. Uh, and here to tell us more about that uh, is, is Seth Shazam who writes freelance for the New York Times and Protocol. Uh, his piece in the Times this Monday was betting on bits and bytes, and it is about the fact that people looking for a place to wager are wagering on esports. So, Seth, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So when we say esports, actually, we're saying four or five different things, right? I mean, or more. Uh, if we're betting on esports, we might bet on you and me playing each other on some uh, some form of electronic game, but we also might just be betting, I guess, on how the game plays a, a match within itself. Yeah, so esports can mean a few different things. Uh, for the context of this story, what we're really talking about is competitive video games, usually. Uh, and that means, or at least traditionally, has meant professionals. And there are professional game players, just like there are professional basketball and, and football players. Uh, so there are professionals uh, who play games uh, like League of Legends or a game called uh, Dota 2 or uh, Counter-Strike. And they play in leagues. And so you'll have fans who just watch those games. And there's an opportunity to bet on the outcome of those contests. One of the things we did discover uh, for this story for the New York Times uh, that ran on Monday was that you also are now seeing gamblers actually bet, yes, on these automated games of the, the program playing itself largely in sports replications, so games that look like a game of soccer or look like a game of basketball, because those are games that are easily and readily understandable to gamblers who might not understand what a video game like League of Legends is, but they can look at a screen and see see people kicking a ball into a net and understand what that means. Um, As for your first part of your question about you and I gambling on a game, uh, there actually are a couple of sites uh, that do allow that, um, but we didn't really get into that for this article. Um, that's actually uh, almost entirely legal. Uh, if you and I were to wager, say, on running down the street, uh, that's legal. That's different than us placing a bet on other people running down the street and someone taking a cut. 
Uh, so yes, esports can mean a few different things. And and your piece also explores some of the regulatory challenges. Is this sports betting? Does it need to be separately licensed? Um, various states are dealing. I mean, here in Connecticut, we don't have sports betting, but uh, different entities, I guess, are grappling with this in different ways. Uh, and and there might be some really interesting questions, like somebody who designed. Uh, a game, a soccer game, might know an awful lot about how it works, for example. Yeah. So internationally, this is a complete patchwork. And and then within the United States, it's also a separate patchwork of 50 separate states, uh, which can pass their own regulations. So internationally, outside of the United States, gambling and sports gambling are fairly ubiquitous. Uh, most countries in the world allow legal gambling of some sort, uh, and for in, in Europe, for instance, there are betting shops on corners, just like we have delis and bodegas and 7-Elevens. They have betting shops uh, at retail. And then a betting operator, but of course, most of this industry is online now. People can use their phone or their computer to place bets on just about anything outside the United States. So those bookmakers have been able to add new esports offerings quickly. But here in the United States, uh, after a Supreme Court ruling just two years ago, that allowed states to legalize sports betting. And this was really driven by the state of New Jersey in particular, wanting to compete with Nevada. So different states now are passing different laws that have different licensing regimes uh, for sports betting and then for esports within it. Uh, Nevada has long been the leader, obviously. So in Nevada, whereas a traditional league like the NFL or the NBA has a blanket permission, the, the bookmakers there can just offer bets on those. For esports, is now categorized as what they call an other event, which means there needs to be a case-by-case petition. Uh, and then in New Jersey, they're trying to change their law there completely. One wonders. I mean, you know, we spent the first part of the show talking about restarting the actual professional sports. Um, and people, once that happens, people are going to start betting on those games again. So to what degree is betting on esports here to stay anyway? Oh, betting on esports was definitely growing already. Uh, it, it's Look, it's a very small portion of overall sports betting and, of course, an even smaller portion of overall gambling in the world. Uh, but esports betting was growing, but the coronavirus and the quarantine has caused it to explode in a good way for them. Yeah. Seth, I'm because, sorry. I, should, I shouldn't even have asked you the last question because I was feeling to notice them. we're essentially out of time. It's a terrific article. We're not doing it justice. Uh, you should read uh, Seth Chazelle's piece in The Times on Monday, Betting on Bits and Bites. Thanks to everybody. Tomorrow's show is about how coronavirus and our other crises have changed our language. I don't know why I didn't remember that. <laughs>